Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the gift of this season, the gift of time uh, to reflect on who you are, to be reminded of what it is we're actually celebrating. And Father, we, we come to you knowing that you are the God of peace. And so as we reflect on that theme today, we, we ask that you would fill us with your peace. Lord, we pray that your spirit would, would fill our hearts, that you'd help us to see you, that he would help us to behold Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, so we are in Micah. Uh, we're in the uh, fifth chapter of Micah today. And I am lost in my notes. Please excuse me. There we go. Okay, that's where I want to be. Uh, so we, we've been in a series uh, for the last four weeks, or this is the fourth of a four-week series uh, called O Come Emmanuel. And what we're doing is we're looking at different uh, Hebrew prophetic texts that point to the coming of our Savior. And as you'll see, there's, there's great continuity in, in a lot of these texts in that they're, they're hitting on similar themes. Uh, one of the major themes is God is mad. We have sinned, and that angers our righteous and holy God. And so he comes in, in condemnation and judgment of our sin. But condemnation and judgment do not get the last word. And so with each, uh, each prophetic text, we also see these words of comfort and of hope. So throughout time, throughout history, uh, as God is, is leveling his, his judgments against the sins of his people, and he's always reminding us of his covenant love, of his faithfulness, of his desire to be reconciled to us. And Jesus is the ultimate answer for, for how he has gone about that. So we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5 today. And so from last week, we're jumping backwards in history, about 100 years. But the theme still remains, that we have sinned, but our God is making a way for us to be reconciled to him. Now, we are in a season of gifts, uh, giving and receiving gifts, and, and I heard a story recently about a gift that went horribly awry. So if you are nervous about uh, getting a wrong gift, I, I, I hope that this will bring you some comfort uh, because it probably won't go as poorly as this one. Uh, the story was told by a reporter who knew that his parents were going to be giving uh, his children, so their grandchildren, a gift, and the gift was an ant farm. It's exciting. Uh, so he was actually very excited about that. He may have been the only member of his family who was excited about that gift. But he remembered having an ant farm when he was a kid, and he thought that it was really cool then. So he was excited uh, for his, his own children to receive that gift. Plus, that gift received uh, some parenting awards. Uh, in fact, it received the 2016 National Parenting Product Award. So it was looking up. Um, so he's excited about that gift finally coming. Well, it did. The, the product arrived, and it's basically a two sheets of see-through plastic with a frame and some sand. And so he put all of that together, and apparently it comes with a coupon, too, that you send in, and then they send you the ants to put in the ant farm. So did all of that. Uh, he received in the mail, I didn't know that that was a thing, but he received in the mail two tubes of live ants, about 100 ants in total. 
Um, so his, he gets the ants, he, he sets it up, he's excited. He says, within a couple of days, amazing things started to happen in the ant farm. Uh, they were already working together. They were building tunnels. There was, there was these intricate patterns that you could see through the, the see-through plastic. But then a couple more days passed, and he walked by the ant farm, and he looked, and much to his uh, dismay, he saw that one of the ants had died. It was sad. Um, well, he goes back a few hours later, and there are more dead ants, and then more dead ants. And, uh, and he also begins noticing that the living ants were, were picking up the, the bodies of their dead friends, sometimes in pieces, and they're moving them to the farthest corner of the ant farm in what became a, a ant mass grave. Um, they, were, they were dropping like ants, I guess. Um, and he, he described this whole thing as, quote, uh, basically a six-week exercise in watching things die. Um, so this guy, being a reporter, uh, does some research, and he actually reaches out to a scientist at Stanford who had studied this particular type of ant. And so he calls, called her up and, and just asked, like, what is going on? Like, I fed them. I did all the things according to the instructions. And she said, yeah, this is just what happens. Um, so she, she said this particular type of ant um, is set up in, a, in an ant farm like what you have. It's basically a toy, and there's a, there's a, a clock that starts as soon as you put the ants in that ant farm. They're going to die, and it's not going to take very long. And so we asked, why? Like, why can't they live in this farm? And, and her answer was really interesting. Uh, her answer was really interesting, and I thought surprising. She said that the ants die because their lives are pointless. And their lives are pointless because they don't have a queen. And friends, I think that that problem isn't exclusive to ants. See, we were created with a deep need for a king. Someone outside of us. Someone over us. And without that, we wither. We lose purpose and we waste away. But the promise of this passage and the promise of Advent is that a king has come and is coming again. A ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, who shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, under whom we may dwell secure. So this morning we're going to look at the promise of our coming king, our good shepherd. And we're going to examine three things about our king. We'll look at his origins the need for him, and his rule. So we'll begin now by looking at our shepherd's origins. And we learn about our shepherd's origins in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So I'm going to go ahead and read that for us. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for, forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. All right, so from where is the shepherd going to come? Bethlehem, Ephrathah, a place that's, that we're told is too little to be among the clans of Judah. We're told that our king, right, the great king, God's king, was going to come from what is essentially flyover country. And the insignificance of Bethlehem is emphasized with this phrase, too little to be among the clans of Judah. 
See, a clan was a large group of families, and, and the collection of various clans then formed the tribes of Israel. See, Israel, the nation of Israel, was composed of 12 different tribes descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. Well, Bethlehem was so small and insignificant that when the tribe of Judah is described in Joshua 15, there are 46 cities or clans that are, that are listed. Bethlehem does not make the list. But this was the place that God was going to use to raise up his royal line. We see that first with King David, who was also from Bethlehem. But the significance of David isn't in his rule and reign in and of itself. It's the one that he points to, this other ruler who was to come. And this verse here, Micah 5, 2, is echoing a prophecy delivered to David in 2 Samuel 7 which tells us that a greater ruler would come from his own body, one whose kingdom would be established eternally. Now, this prophecy goes against just about every natural expectation that people would have had for the coming king, the one who would come and set everything right. This ruler would be expected to come from a significant city like Jerusalem, from an important family, the expectation was that he would be wealthy, significant, handsome. He, was, he should be brought up in a palace or at least palace adjacent. He should have the, the, the biggest beard and the broadest shoulders and able to carry the biggest sword. These would have been the natural expectations for the coming king. Some of my, my favorite people on the planet are, are sober and in recovery, and so I've picked up some, some lines from the big book of AA, and by far my favorite one is this. Expectations are planned disappointments. Expectations are planned disappointments. There's something very real and true about that statement, isn't there? We all have expectations about how situations ought to go, about how things ought to work, about the direction that our lives should take, about what God will and should do. But things usually don't go in accordance with our expectations, and we're inevitably disappointed. But God's MO throughout history is to take our expectations and turn them on their heads. And I think he does this in part to remind us that he is God and we are not. In the, the famous uh, film from 1993, Rudy, uh, there's a, a fantastic scene in which the protagonist, Rudy, whose, whose main ambition in life is to attend Notre Dame and to play football there, uh, he is sort of confronted with potentially the end of his dream. And he's, he's again, in this particular scene, he's, uh, in a chapel praying, and he's asking that God would, would fulfill this, this wish of his. And as he's praying, there's a, a priest that walks by him. His name is Father Kavanaugh, and he notices Rudy there, and that he's by himself, and he seems to be distressed. And so Father Kavanaugh walks over to Rudy, and they strike up a conversation. And so Rudy tells him what's, what's going on, what's on his heart, and he asks the priest, you know, Father, is there, is there anything else that I could do? Is there anything else that I should be doing in addition to praying? And Father Kavanaugh responds with what is probably the best line in the movie. He says, Son, in 35 years of religious study, I've only come up with two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I am not him. 
It's a dangerous thing to cling so tightly to our expectations because we aren't the ones in control. And it seems pretty safe to say that most of the time when God works, He doesn't do so in accord with our expectations. And this passage is a beautiful example of that. When the ruler that we all need comes, he doesn't grow up in a palace or palace adjacent. He doesn't have the longest beard or the broadest shoulders or the biggest sword. He certainly doesn't carry the biggest sword. Instead, he comes from the insignificant town of Bethlehem. And we now have the luxury of looking back 2,000 years at how the story truly played out because this prophecy finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And while the prophecy in and of itself was hard enough to swallow the way that it was actually fulfilled is extra. Not only is Jesus born in Bethlehem, a city too small to be named among the clans of Judah, he doesn't even have a proper birth story. He's not born in a proper house. He's born to a virgin peasant girl who's forced to give birth in a stable. When he's visited, he's not in a royal bed clothed in rich robes. Instead, he is in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. This wouldn't have matched anyone's expectations. The whole thing sounds impossible. It did to Mary too, which is why she had to be reminded by the angel Gabriel, for nothing will be impossible with God. Friends, we are not in control and there is very little in this life, which is in a fallen world that happens in accord with our expectations, but nothing will be impossible with God. Our shepherd, the one who has come to rule and set everything right, has the humblest of origins. So now let's take a look at our need for him. And this is what we read about in verse 3. I'm going to go ahead and read that for us now. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Well, before God comes to rule his people, he allows them to go their own way for a time. And I think he does this in part to demonstrate or, or so that the need for him would be unquestionable. From the very beginning, humans have desired to rule themselves. We see this in the Garden of Eden, Eden when Adam and Eve rebel against God by eating the fruit from the tree. They wanted to define good and evil for themselves, and we have been trying to do the same ever since, haven't we? Tears for Fears was right. Everybody wants to rule the world. And the end result, the end result is suffering and chaos. And in the immediate context, this tendency to, to shirk the rule of God will lead to years of exile for the people of Israel. Michael will watch the northern kingdom get swept away by the Assyrians to be followed by the southern kingdom within a few generations of that time when the Babylonians come through. Self-rule does and always will end in disaster. Why? because we were made by God for God. And though there's something in us that, that wants to rule the world, deep down, 
we know that we are only going to find meaning and joy and purpose when we get ourselves in tune with reality, the way things actually are. And that reality tells us that there is a God and we are not Him. Without that, without that guiding us, we are ants scurrying around in an ant farm digging tunnels to nowhere. And something that I find really interesting is that despite our tendency to rebel against God and His rule, despite our desire to rule the world on our own, there is a competing desire that, that leaks out. All over the world, there persist these narratives, legends about great kings who once ruled but who are coming back to establish peace and justice. Right, we see this in the story of Robin Hood in which the good King Richard in, uh, is absent. And in his absence, there is corruption and oppression. So Robin Hood and his merry men, that is the most unfortunate title for a group of soldiers, and his merry men uh, work to bring justice as they await the return of the good King Richard, um, who will establish it definitively. This is also a theme in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, with the third book being given the title, The Return of the King. Another example of, of these stories is the legend of King Arthur. It's nearly a thousand years old at this point. And, and they put on the tombstone of the great King Arthur, here lies Arthur, the once and future king. Right? One who ruled and established peace, but who will come back. Now, supposedly our world today is too sophisticated for such stories and legends, but they continue. In recent years, as you all know, The Lord of the Rings was made into a series of movies, which, uh, which brought... I, I'm working on it. Um, okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> it was made into a series of movies that brought in $2.9 billion in the box office. So why are these stories persisting? Why the permanence? Why do they keep coming back? Why do we keep watching them? I think it's because they are echoes of a story that's truly behind everything. We know that we have made a mess of things, and we long for someone to come and put it, to, and put it right. We need the one who is from of old, from ancient days, to come and to put everything back in order. And the promise of this passage is that that will happen. We saw the beginnings of it in Jesus' first comings, and it will come to fruition at his second. All right, so deep down, we, we want the shepherd to come and establish his rule. But then the question is, what will that rule look like? So let's take a look now at verses 4 through 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. These verses are the ones that give us the, the shepherd imagery that I've been using. And the reference to, to rulers as shepherds was a common motif throughout the ancient Near East. And so, for example, pharaohs were often depicted carrying shepherd staffs. And there's one shepherd in particular who, uh, uh, excuse me, one pharaoh in particular, his name was Sesostris. He wrote this inscription on a building. 
He begat me to do what should be done for him, to accomplish what he commands to do. He appointed me shepherd of this land, knowing him who would hurt it for him. In a similar vein, the prologue to the great code of Hammurabi uh, portrays the king as shepherd of his people. So here's a section from the, po- from the prologue. I am the salvation-bearing shepherd whose staff is straight, the good shadow that is spread over my city. On my breast, I cherish the inhabitants of the land. In my shelter, I have let them repose in peace. In my deep wisdom, I have enclosed them. So throughout the ancient Near East, the shepherd ruler was a symbol of power and of salvation. And we see that symbol picked up here in this text and also used throughout the Bible. And once again, it it comes to fruition. It finds its fulfillment, its truest expression in Jesus, who calls himself the good shepherd in John 10, 11. So what does all of this mean? Well, for one thing, it means that the shepherd, that Jesus, is in charge. Look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You see in this verse how the might and power of the shepherd are emphasized. He stands. He doesn't sit to actively shepherd his people, and he does so in the strength of the Lord. The shepherd is in charge. And the imagery here is instructive. If God is our shepherd, it implies that we are, good job, sheep. It implies that we are sheep. Now, friends, that is not really a compliment. Uh, I don't know of any team that has chosen sheep as their mascot. Um, And why not? Well, it's because they're not the most impressive or intelligent of creatures. Um, There's no such thing as a sheep trainer or sheep tricks. Uh, You can't teach a sheep to to sit or roll over. And there are even descriptions of sheep for, for no reason at all walking directly into open flames. Again, not the, not the most intelligent creatures. Uh, they're also defenseless. And sheep don't have fangs or claws. Uh, they, they're not going to bite you in a way that's going to make any difference. They can't outrun you. They're in trouble on their own. They're also dirty. A cat can clean itself. Dogs <laughs> attempt to. Uh, bears will even bathe themselves in rivers. Sheep, though, when they get dirty... They stay that way. Sheep can't take care of themselves. So why would God compare us to sheep? And and again, we see this not just here, uh, which is implicit. We see it explicitly stated throughout the Bible. that God is our shepherd and we therefore are his sheep. Why would God do this? Why would he give us that title? Why would he make that comparison? Is it to make us feel bad about ourselves? No, I don't think that's it at all. I think he compares us to sheep because in order for sheep to survive, they need a shepherd, and he is the good shepherd. But given this framework, he's the, the, the fact that he is the shepherd and we are the sheep, it means that he is the one who calls the shots. A shepherd doesn't lead his sheep through a democratic process. He doesn't tell his sheep, you know, we're going to go graze over here, raise a, a hoof if you agree. That's not the way that it works. He doesn't rule by committee. 
The shepherd knows what is best, and so he lovingly guides the sheep in that way. He is in charge. But how does he exercise that charge? How does he exercise that rule? How does the good shepherd reign over his sheep? Well, let me give you the rest of John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is in charge. But how does he exercise his rule? By giving up everything for us. See, in this whole season, we're reflecting on the birth of Jesus and and the gift and miracle that it was. But why did he come? For this. He came that he might lay down his life for the sheep. See, our tendency to resist God's rule and the mess that we've made of our own lives and the world as a result is not something that God takes lightly. It's sin, and it needs to be dealt with. But the true gift of Christmas, the gift of the gospel, is that our sin has been dealt with definitively in Jesus. He came in humility, born in the insignificant town of Bethlehem to two Jewish peasants. He took on the burden of the law, and he followed it perfectly. But then, he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. The shepherd was willing to become the lamb. So yes, Jesus is in charge. He calls the shots. He is the one who rules over you. But he is also the one who loves you so deeply that he is willing to go to the cross for you. And what's the end result for us? Peace. We now get to experience the peace that comes with the freedom from sin and the punishment that it deserves. And the peace of knowing that that while part of us wants to, we don't actually rule the world. Now, in this season, the, the word peace is talked about a lot. It's, it's written on Christmas decorations. We have lots and lots of songs that are, are sung about peace. But I'm probably looking at a room full of anxious people, aren't I? There remains presents to be wrapped. Uh, actually, wait. There remains presents to be bought and then wrapped. Uh, there are, are parties to put together. There are travel. There's travel to be coordinated. Uh, there are family tensions and drama to navigate, it can feel overwhelming, to say the least. But I think this season is, it, it, it just exacerbates the level of anxiety that many of us feel all of the time. An anxiety that comes with what is likely an implicit belief that everything rests on me. It all comes down to me. That if I don't hold things together, it's all going to fall apart that I am in control. But friends, that is not true. The good shepherd is the one who is in control. And this is a truth that we can find peace and comfort in despite our circumstances because this shepherd knows you and he loves you enough to have laid down his life for you. John, 4, John 10, 14, and 15 tells us, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, many of you have likely heard of uh, the, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. Well, Luther had a friend, a fellow theologian and reformer named Philip Melanchthon. And Philip Melanchthon is often overshadowed by Luther, who had the much bigger personality, but, but Melanchthon was actually one of the first systematic theologians of the Reformation. But Melanchthon also struggled severely with anxiety. He was, he was constantly worried, and, and for good reason. His life, along with the life of Luther, were, were constantly under the threat of death. So the man had a lot to be anxious about. But when, uh, when he would struggle, when you he, when have kind of episodes where he's struggling with anxiety and, and Luther was around to observe it, Luther would go over to his friend Philip and put his hand on his shoulder. And you know what he would tell him? He would say this, Let Philip cease to rule the world. So think for a minute. What is something that you are worried about right now? Where are you trying to rule the world, or at least your world? Well, friends, let me remind you of this good news. You don't, nor do you have to rule the world. Your good shepherd does. So as we come into Christmas, which believe it or not, is less than a week away at this point. Remind yourself of that. You're not called to rule the world. You don't have to. You couldn't even if you wanted to. But it rests squarely in the hands of our Good Shepherd, who knows you, who loves you enough to have laid down his life for you. That's good news. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for that truth this morning, the reality that you know us, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you have proven all of those things in the work of Jesus. So, Father, we pray that we would continually look to him, that we would recognize him for who he is, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the one who rules us and the events of the world. So, Father, help us to... to relinquish our worry, to relinquish our anxiety, and help us to find peace and comfort in that reality in and of itself, but then also in perhaps the greater truth that the one who rules everything is the one who loved us enough to have given his life for us. Remind us of that this Christmas season, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.